The best chats are always the unscripted ones. There are interesting stories all around us, and here's one of them. Open your eyes, spectacular's right in front of you. <laughs> oh yeah, this is totally unscripted, so we never know where this is going to go. Dangerous. This is the unscripted perspective. Turn the volume. And here's your host, Phil Parker. Phil Parker. Phil Parker. Phil Parker. Well, hello, hello, hello. Yet again, it's another episode of the Unscripted Perspective. Your host, of course, is me, Phil Parker. And this lovely evening, I am talking with an amazing guest, a first for the Unscripted Perspective. We have an astrophysicist, um, Ian Hall. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Good evening, stroke. Good morning for me, Phil. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Actually, I don't, I don't do too many unscripted things in my life, so um, yeah, this is a little bit out of my comfort zone, which is cool. Um, it's it's like it's like having your favorite beverage with a friend is what I always describe to anyone that wants to join the show. Yeah, um, we we kind of just. Uh, Go with the flow. Um, for people who don't know who you are, uh, obviously an astrophysicist straight out of the gate, everyone's like, okay, this is going to be different. Um, you had me very interested with the conversations we've had, but um, as far as you, your background, do you want to give us a little bit of a background for, for the guys that don't know you? Yeah, sure. So um, I kind of grew up, I suppose, um, a number of years ago now interested in science um <clears throat> i've always had a fascination with numbers um space the universe the cosmos finding out how stuff works i guess when my friends were taking bits of electronics to pieces and <clears throat> you know building stuff out of legos when we were kids i was sitting around wondering why the moon didn't fall out of the sky that type of thing and that um you know that fascination just grew and grew i went through some education um and yeah, eventually ended up in the job that I'm doing now. So it's a slightly um, it's a slightly obscure job that a, a lot of people do um, struggle to figure out what astrophysicists do on a day to day basis. But but okay. actually, it's, it's very wide and varied. So we do a lot of research. We do a lot of do a lot of reading. A lot of reading, um, and, and we also do stuff like this as we've um, come through into sort of probably with the onset of the internet and then very much so in the last sort of five to 10 years, science outreach has been hugely important. So, um, you know, websites that feature science articles and explainers like ours and also shows like this um, are, are absolutely an, an essential part of being a scientist these days to explain uh, what we do to people, why we do it, and also to sort of broaden the the interest in science through the general public. So that's kind of my background, and I do a lot of science outreach now. I've found that that's kind of my calling. So I probably do more of this outreach stuff than I do research, um, especially through the average scientist, and that's cool because I get to talk to nice guys like you. I get to connect with amazing people like your listeners, and uh, I really love it. You know, I love answering the questions. Um, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get asked questions today that I don't know the answers to. That's absolutely part of science, um, and and there's no no shame in that. One of the first things that you have to be comfortable with as a scientist is not knowing the answer to something. So uh, we'll probably cross a few of those bridges today. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I can tell you that um, just 
just in preparation for this um this chat i suppose you can call it is um i did um a lot of i suppose inner reflection of what what we will be talking about because when we were preparing for the for the podcast and we were having our own chats we kind of went everywhere with it you know you, yeah. you gave me facts to kind of blow my mind about what you work on but um we we talked about pretty much everything and your perspective on these things was so unexpected that that's why i really wanted to get you on because what someone's understanding of what you do and what you actually do is is quite in, in, incredible i mean i'm looking at your website it's called the average scientist um and what it is is it, it it's big bold letters science articles and explainers for normal people and um it couldn't be any better explained than that caption because that is kind of what what everyone is striving to do is to understand um sure. so um so really and truthfully the, the biggest question um that i always ask my my guests and everything is um you know what what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis but this me asking you this question now is like <laughs> it could just open a can of worms, but I'm going to ask it because you, you did touch on, you know, these things you read and you do all that kind of stuff. So on a day-to-day -day basis for an astrophysicist, um, like what is your focus or is that an arranged thing or, or do you go by a calendar and all that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment, we, we, we do a lot of events um, through the summertime, a lot of outreach events, because there's a lot of um, festivals and things like that. And um, kind of with the with the growth of the awareness of things like sustainability, um, astrophysicists and scientists are asked to speak quite a lot at those events. And they're generally summer-based because they're kind of, you know, everything from... Um, Sort of quite large theatre events that are run as part of a summer season, which include now some science outreach because it's almost um, you know like entertainment in a way. Where mm. this has been this has been kind of um, really brought to the fore by people like Brian Cox, who, who's on a huge world tour at the moment. Um, like I guess this touring academic science show type thing and that that has sort of permeated down into smaller theatres and venues and so people like me are asked to do those types of things quite a lot and that tends to be um, a, a, a kind of summer season thing so uh, I'll be doing a lot of that type of outreach at the moment so a lot of preparation for that and um, you know a lot of distilling down of relevant information into manageable uh, easier to understand or easy to understand bite-sized chunks attaching that with videos and things like that so there's quite a lot of media production a lot of outreach at the moment but in terms of a day-to-day -day basis I guess for research purposes so we were involved in two projects two research projects at the average scientist and one is far more prevalent than the other I suppose so um, I'll talk about the second one first because I think this will be of well I think both projects will be of, of interest to your listeners so the one that we're involved in, in in quite a mild sense and this probably takes up I don't know five to ten percent of my week or something like that is a project that's attached to uh, UCLA SETI so if your listeners are not aware of what SETI is it's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence 
So what what we assist to do in this um, is we we help with data. So we we get a bunch of um, a bunch of data that comes from UCLA, and we help to classify that into one of three types of radio interference. So I guess what you can think of this is is casting a huge net into the universe and capturing all the background noise, and then sifting through that and seeing if you can find anything. That, that isn't background noise. It's, wow. quite, it's quite a large and complex and um, involved project. But I guess what we're actually searching for there at its heart is something like a radio signal or a TV transmission or a mobile phone exchange. That's what we would, that's what we would listen to. That's what we would find if we cast that net out and we focused on our planet. That's what we would find. We would hear radio signals. We would hear evidence of intelligence. So we're looking for technology in the universe, evidence of technology in the universe that doesn't belong to us. So um, the, the <laughs> okay, so um, we're 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 going a hundred miles an hour now, guys. Strap in, here we go. Um, so um, extraterrestrial activity. You're you you've this is something that is a widely and it's a massive, massive, massive following and interest for a lot of people. Um, especially over, over in the U S um, you know, because you have the very famous Roswell incident, there's books, there's all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I guess we could go into detail about facts and things that you're finding, but what is your belief system about extraterrestrial activity? And do you think as a, as a scientist and what you've discovered over the years, um, are we, I'd hope we're not alone because it's a pretty big, pretty big universe to be sitting here. But with, with everything that's gone on, you know, I'm a Star Trek watcher. I'm a, I'm a Star Wars watcher. You know, I'd love to think that some of that is based on maybe some kind of reality in the future where we are going to eventually find, you know, life elsewhere. But um, sure. where are we with that now? Are we even close? Are we finding anything substantial? Is this, are you being uh, <laughs> moved into rooms with darkened windows and dis- <laughs> discussing things that we shouldn't even be talking about today? No, I'm not. Uh, sorry to disappoint everyone. I mean, it might be worth, Phil, just br- brushing on the other project that we do there as well, because it's just it's intrinsically linked. So before I answer that question, I'll quickly run through the project, the research project that takes up most of our time here. And this is um, a project called Planet Hunters. So it's very closely connected. So what Planet Hunters effectively does is take, um, and again, we help with the classification of the data. So it takes data from um, NASA hardware, so historically from satellites such as Kepler, but more recently satellites such as TESS. So the TESS satellite is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And what what this does is it looks at stars beyond the Milky Way galaxy. So beyond our galaxy um, and away from our sun, it will find a little tiny point of light in the sky and it will look at it for a little while and measure how bright it is. And, you know, if we can imagine that brightness, it doesn't really matter how we classify that brightness, but let's say we say that the brightness of that star is 10, whatever 10 means. 
And after a while, what we hope to see is the brightness of that star reducing slightly. So it might reduce down to seven for a little while and then pop back up to 10 again. So what that's telling us is that something has passed between the star and Tessa's camera to block a little bit of the light that's being emitted by that star. And what that is usually is a planet that's orbiting around that star. So that's the where the transit part of the test satellite comes in. Exoplanet, for, for people that don't understand that term, it's really easy to understand. It just means any planet that isn't orbiting our sun. Uh, and then survey satellite, obviously, that, that's exactly what it's doing. It's surveying these. So we look at these transits and we try to classify them into various different types, if you like. So there's a lot of what we would call false positives. So that's kind of weeding out anomalies and errors and things like that. But every now and then we do find real planets and we've found thousands and thousands of those. And it does feel like something that we should have known 200 years ago 300 years ago but actually the frightening reality is that up until the early 90s we thought that we were the only planetary system in the universe can you believe that that's that's incredible isn't it doesn't even feel, doesn't even feel that I long remember ago, star trek is out in the <laughs> 80s so i mean <laughs> yeah well that, was, that that's a classic example of how science fiction um morphed its way into science fact just right. with the onset of these discoveries. So that's the other project that we get involved in. So what are we really doing there? You know, what is the point of this? Well, what we're doing is we're looking for um, exoplanets that are orbiting stars outside of the Milky Way galaxy. And we're looking specifically for those planets that are orbiting in what we would call the Goldilocks zone. And the Goldilocks zone is an area around the star that is not too far away to make the planet so cold that any water would freeze into ice, but not too close so that all the water would evaporate into a gas steam. So we're looking right. for we're looking for a planet that's orbiting in an area that's not too cold, not too hot. Essentially habitable. Right. Habitable, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're looking for Earth-like planets. Right. So to loop back around to your question, are we do i think that we're alone in the universe because these two things and it's important to distinguish the difference between these two projects because they sound like they're doing the same thing but they're not doing the same thing the exoplanet survey project is looking for life the ucla seti project is looking for intelligence and those two things are incredibly different so yeah. the, the search for life could be microbial it could be carbon-based life. It could be silicon-based life. It could be any kind of life. What We would be ecstatic if we sent astronauts to Mars and found bacteria on there, or even fossils on there, evidence of past life. The SETI project is looking for intelligence, evidence of a technological civilization. So that's the distinction between the two. What is my, what is my opinion on that? My opinion is, if you were to ask me, are we alone in the universe in terms of life, I would say overwhelmingly not. The, 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 the evidence that we've collected, and whilst there's no direct evidence there, um, so we haven't observed life on another planet, but the sheer, as you alluded to earlier, the sheer vastness of the universe and the fact that every time you look up into the sky, 
every star that you see has at least one planet orbiting it, probably more. Life as we understand it can only exist in how I described the Goldilocks zone earlier, but that's only life as we understand it. Right. You know, there could be life um, as we don't currently understand it. So, um, and, and and that that is very interesting because that's another area of study that some of my colleagues are working on, um, you know, here on Earth. So they're, they're working on something called um, ex- projects around extremophiles. So extremophiles are these very strange forms of life that we find right here on earth and it's it's they are they're found in places where life has no right to exist whatsoever like at the bottom of a cave in a pool of sulfuric acid T- take a pet no i'm joking yeah <laughs> 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 yeah, they so, they so they find this. You know, they'll put put a little drop of this um, acidic substance on a um, you know on a microscope slide, pop it under the microscope, and there is stuff swimming around in it. Life is wow. extremely it is extremely resilient. It's extremely hardy, and um, it's able to exist in the most unlikely places. So those two things, um, you know, the the fact that almost or every star we think in the universe has got at least one planet orbiting around it and the fact that from evidence here on earth life is so resilient to extreme conditions that is smoking gun evidence for scientists that we are absolutely not alone so that would be my answer to that question it's it's inevitable uh, the fact that life exists and I, i think that we'll find that quite soon I think that we're looking at probably five to ten years maximum for that. Um, I think it will probably be be um, absolutely irrefutable evidence when human beings travel to Mars. So I think by the time we get to Mars, we will either find microbial life or exit or um, evidence of past past life on Mars, which to a scientist would be just as good. Um, right. So, so there's that. There are a few other places in our solar system where life is screaming at us that it should exist so i mean we can cover those in a moment if you like and i can talk about those um in terms of intelligent life how how do i feel about that now that is much different much much different so if we think about how we um how we're fairly sure life sprung up on earth i guess for a start phil Life sprung up on Earth just about as soon as it possibly could have done. So billions and right. billions of years. And, um, and this, and this that... for, for those of us who are religious, <laughs> is not um, a knock. Because we had this conversation as well. Because, this, um, you know, we've, you know, religion is a huge part of the world. It's something that um, every culture in every country all around the globe has adopted. Well, in some form or some fashion and have some belief system around that. And yep. I think where science and, and religion kind of meet, there's always that disagreement or there's a, there's a, there's an argument of what we don't understand and the proof and the evidence that we do have. And, the, and, and to be honest, what we don't have evidence of so, I mean, we had a, a conversation before we even did this that, you know, um, which I must say the, the, the way you handled it and the, your answer to it just kind of 
made me more aware of the fact that what what the religious people are are so adamant and argumentative about is is actually something that you're willing to acknowledge so um i think i think the hard part is is when we're talking about where life came from where you know because you know we don't know the first molecule that ever happened on on this planet we can't we can't pinpoint exactly how it happened we can we can we can study books we can kind of come up with a story we can but where and how it just all of a sudden just blossomed and then we're we're now walking and talking and eating eating top ramen and things like that you know it's it's a very it's a very interesting but also i suppose it's why scientists and everyone um in that field exists is because there really isn't a, a definitive answer of where life actually started and came from. We know the path it took. We know that it had a a very a, an evolution of sorts where you know we've we, we were there was reptiles and there was fish and there was all this you know you, you can go through it um but to where it literally just existed is very hard to pinpoint and that is where the argument and the discussion begins is you know god created the earth and all that you know we can go go through each religion and and find find their theory there isn't an argument that is definitive on the scientist side to say that that is incorrect no not at all <clears throat> not at all and i think the the important distinct uh, distinction between science and religion is that science will never ask you to believe so there's no belief in science. It's all evidence. And that evidence is um, empirical, repeatable, testable evidence. And this is a really good point that you bring up because, um, and, and that's in no way is that me saying that science has kind of got the whip hand over religion and you should believe that. The two coexist very, very happily. They're different things. They're completely different things. Science will never ask you to believe, but, um, you know, it... That, that that is the beauty of it it's a it's a framework of knowledge which um is built upon over generation and generation and generation and when when science changes its mind which it does all the time um it doesn't change its mind because it lied to you in the first instance it changes its mind because it learned more and mm -hmm. that's that's kind of where where we're at with this so um and i talk you know i actually a lot of the um a lot of the outreach i do is in um for, for in religious buildings they they have a lot of these things in in cathedrals here in the uk and um you know i get on very very well with um, with members of the clergy and things like that and actually the science framework as we understand it at the moment does lend itself very well the um, most most religions have a creation story of some description and science is actually really happy really happy with that so our, our best um you know our best view of how the universe was created at the moment is is from the big bang so that the big bang is a moment of creation and if you ask any scientist what happened before the big bang it's only speculation we don't know right and and, and religion there will step in and say well hey we know we know right. what happened before the big bang and right. we're we're really we're really comfortable with that you know we're, we're happy for any religion to tell us what happened before the big bang because nobody's idea is any more accurate than anyone else's it, it, it's it goes from science fact 
into a belief system beyond there. And actually, mm. that's where scientists usually, uh, well, we're, we're very interested in trying to find out what happened before then. But it's actually where we will be the first people to stop speculating. So, you know, if, if someone says to me, you're like, oh, I can tell you that water is made up of a different, um, you know, a, a different sort of collection of molecules, I would say to them, well, no, you're wrong. You know, we can prove we can prove <laughs> we yeah. can prove exactly what water's made of. It's it's not up for it's not up for debate. But but with some of these things, um, such as what happened before the Big Bang, etc., you know, we're we're the first people to put our hands up. And and another really important thing that would be, I think, really interesting for your um, listeners to understand is just something something to understand about the scientific method. So in the in the normal world that all of us live in day to day, um eyewitness testimony is the highest form of evidence so if we see a crime being committed or something like that and we get called to go into a uh, you know court of law and give some evidence if if i see someone committing a crime and then i give that evidence eyewitness testimony is the highest form of evidence that you can use in science eyewitness testimony is the lowest form of evidence in fact it's so low it's not submissible so if I say to my colleagues, um, I observe this happening, uh, they'd say to me, that's great. <laughs> Set me up some experiments so I can see it for myself and repeat it again and again and again and prove it. So we're not into speculation at all. In fact, we don't even trust one another individually. <laughs> that is the, yeah, that is the scientific method. So, you know, when we, when we say things like, uh, okay, you know, we, we, we've got a pretty good guess how the moon was formed. So um, we don't know how the moon was formed definitively because we weren't there, but right. we, we can we can get to a percentage of accuracy by saying, you know, I think the moon was created under these circumstances because right. we have observed similar things in the universe or the processes, that type of thing. So that's where we kind of sit with the whole um, with the whole religious framework. And actually, we work very well with um, with with the religious framework. It generally the religious framework likes the big bang theory because there is a because there's a moment of creation and as as i mentioned we're we're totally happy with that and we're we're very happy for religion to explain what happened before there and until such a point as we know better which might which might be never well i think um i mean it's i hope for my listeners that that is a an open door to understand and maybe um, give more time to the scientific field because um, I think science is always um, going to be important for 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 humanity and for for just you know the world around us because we need it for explanation and 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 to find out the truth and facts like you keep saying the the the, the fact that you have you know the repeatable side of it is 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 amazing um and the fact that eyewitness testimony is the lowest form of proof is is another shocking detail to hear because i mean like you said, it's crime is if I see someone committing a crime, then, you know, that's, that's it. It's over. Um, yep. so yeah, I mean, that's, that's baffling. And, um, like I, like I've said before, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that, um, you guys, astrophysicists, scientists are, are out there doing the hard work and it's essentially, um, for a while, it was the religious community was just like, no, we don't want to hear any of it. It's all, 
it's all BS. There's nothing, there's nothing we want to hear. I don't believe any of it. Everything was done by this and you know, whatever, <clears throat> but there has been a, a shift in willingness to hear and learn and, and, and just acknowledge, um, the things that you're finding because, um, because I really do feel that, um, the, you know, what we can explain and also the fact that people are less, um, they're not followers. We're not sheep anymore. We want to know, we want to know what we want to know. And, and, and it's, there's a, there's a lot of things that we want explained and the, just because is not an answer. So there's, there's certain things that we, we, we as people are willing to accept as a belief system, but the rest we want facts. Like for me, religion has always been part of my life. I grew up in Ireland. Catholicism is something that's huge. Um, do I ironclad believe in everything that's said? No, but that's the beauty of religion. It's your own belief system, right? But sure. um, everything else, I want to know. Like, I love watching um, David Attenborough is one of my favorite human beings of all time. He's 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 basically educated me on, on a lot of things. And um, that is science. That is what I love. And reading books and getting those details. So the marriage of religion and science, like you said, has been over a period of time has happened even more so. And I think it's fantastic that more and more people are willing to open, open their eyes and actually open their minds to different things that can happen. Um, I've spoken to many pastors and many religious uh, people who have made that leap into, well, yeah, I'm going to hear what they have to say, you know? Sure. No, and I and, and me the same. You know, I've had a lot of those a lot of those types of conversations as well. And it is it is important for everyone to realise that the two fields are are <clears throat> they're often perceived as being in opposition with each other. But if you actually get to um, you know here in the UK, for example, I had an opportunity to speak to to uh, a bishop, um, and we found that um, our views were perfectly aligned. So I think that when you get to the, um, I suppose, in inverted commas, professionals in each field, they don't disagree with one another. It's kind of the, that there's a lot of noise and a lot of, because science is a very, very complicated area. There's no doubt about that. But, but equally, so is religion. And be, because when, when something be, starts to become complicated, then confusion is easy to come by. And I think... Within the general public, because that confusion then becomes head to head, that that's when um, you know we see opposition in the two camps. But actually, when when we have a clear view with the professionals at the top, we don't disagree with one another very often at all. And and I think that's probably quite an interesting point and an interesting perspective. You know, I wouldn't. Um, I could have a yeah. A, yeah two, uh, I could have a two hour long conversation with a bishop, and I don't think we disagree on a single thing. And that, and that's because those professionals are extremely reasonable about what what they respect as how we learn things and mm. we're also extremely respectful of what we don't know so i can tell you lots and lots about the universe but if you ask me why it's here i just say to you actually phil i've got no idea no right. idea at all and i'm not sure if we'll ever know and i think it's good for the average joe to know that there isn't that much of a um i suppose opposing force scenario between the two fields because um, no. it, 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 it kind of, 
aligns things going down the food chain, I guess. Because if the professionals are saying, look, I, I'm quite willing to accept that this is fact. Um, the rest of it, they're willing to accept is is belief. So, you know, we're, we're open to that. Is It's actually a pretty enriching uh, thought process. Um, now it's I'm going to... Sorry, go on. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to I'm going to um, I'm going to kick into stuff that we've talked about before and, okay. and, and things that have kind of cropped up for me that has has hurt science in a way, because you've you yeah. did say, you know, things change and people change their mind because of new fact. But I've grown up in a schooling system that taught me that Pluto was a planet. Right. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, it's not out of nowhere. You just decided, no, not a planet anymore. <laughs> was that a committee that just to said just just said no nah, we're not going to do that anymore and so everybody that ha- had any knowledge all their knowledge now is just it's like <laughs> that means that somebody somewhere got marked incorrectly in their final exams <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah you should go back when you were asked how many planets were in the solar system and somebody said eight um yeah, I, I I I understand exactly where you're coming from, and this is a this is a sort of a classic example, really, of finding out more, you know, more stuff, and and actually giving ourselves a problem because um, this this whole thing with the planet Pluto it is quite it's quite small, it's quite a small planet, and mm. it just so happened that um, <clears throat> with um, so as we go through. As we go through science, we sort of look. There are a few important names in there, and maybe people have heard of these names before, but they don't necessarily always associate them with being scientists. More likely, they might associate them with being NASA hardware, for example, because NASA, right. are, um, yeah, always um, seem to favourite naming their hardware after scientists from from the past. So um, earlier, we spoke about the two space telescopes that, that look for um, planetary transits so tests more recently and then prior to that kepler well kepler wasn't something that they made up kepler was a was a um he was a scientist he was an astronomer and um he he did some really important work um building from work that isaac newton had done on gravity uh, around kepler's laws of planetary motion so there are three laws of planetary motion and most more specifically this sort of taught us that planets don't orbit in perfect circles, they orbit in ellipses. And as a result of this work, <clears throat> some planets were that we hadn't yet seen were predicted. So Kepler predicted, for example, that a planet should exist around about where Neptune exists, for example, but we hadn't seen it. So using Kepler's laws, we preempted that planet there, looked and then discovered Neptune. So there was a planet there just as Kepler's laws predicted. And the same was, and it was the wow. same for Pluto. So because we observed these planets, Pluto was then classified as a planet within our, within our solar system. But as our knowledge increased and improved, we, we always knew that Pluto was quite a small planet. But then we started finding a bunch of other stuff in our solar system as well, like huge moons around um, Jupiter and Saturn, which are almost as big as Pluto. Um, other large 
bodies out in the solar system which we're not classifying as planets but they're nearly planets they're nearly the size of uh, Pluto in fact one of them's larger than Pluto and that was where the problem came so the problem came okay what do we refer to as a planet of our solar system anything that's orbiting around the sun Pluto does orbit around the sun but because Pluto doesn't hold any other bodies in orbit around it it was declassified as a planet and classified as a dwarf planet. <laughs> so we went down to, um, you know, we went down to one planet less in our solar system, but actually it was because of the discovery of a huge amount more stuff for us to consider. You know, if I think if we'd have considered Pluto a planet, we might well have ended up with 40 planets in our solar system. So right. we kind of had to just move the goalposts ever so slightly on that one to to keep it sensible and keep it consistent with what we observe in our solar system, but also elsewhere as well. So I think that's the explanation for that, but it doesn't help anyone who lost, lost a point in an exam for <laughs> the same point yeah. with the planet. <laughs> right. And I, I think it's important for people to know why that happens because I mean, um, not that it's frustrating per se, but I mean, um, while you say you're getting more knowledge, it's very, um, contradictory of yourselves to come out with this information and go actually we were wrong and then all of a sudden you open yourselves a can of worms where well if they were wrong about that then what else are they wrong about you know what i mean so it's it's very i i suppose it works against you in a way sometimes it does i mean as i said right at the uh, right at the start of, of the um, of the show you have to be comfortable not knowing and you have to be comfortable not being wrong i mean i'll give you a great, a great example <clears throat> so um isaac newton sir isaac newton and his theory of gravitation so when when isaac newton and it's a rather poetic story which probably isn't true but i'm sure um, a lot of your listeners have heard of it so isaac newton was sitting in his, his garden you know underneath an apple tree contemplating the universe an apple fell on his head and um bounced off his head and hit the hit the ground and that started to make him think about how gravity worked and he wondered if the same force that was um affecting the apple was also affecting the moon so that's the story again rather poetic probably not true but um <laughs> <laughs> but this led him to um to his theory of gravity and is very basically his theory of gravity said any two bodies with mass attract one another if one body is larger than the other, the force will be greater. If the bodies are far apart, the, f the force will be less effective than if those bodies are closer together. And that was, that was his theory of gravity in a nutshell. And he, he said, that's it. That's how gravity works. And, you know, he, what, but one thing that he ignored was the sort of the empty space around us. And he mm. said, his, his view of gravity was that all of these gravitational effects happened inside a great big box of nothing. And that was his, that was his view of gravity, something that we still teach in universities today, but it's wrong. But it's absolutely wrong. Albert Einstein came along in 1915 and he said, I like, I like that. I like the bit about bodies with mass attracting each other, but you're wrong about the empty space. It isn't nothing, it's something. And hmm. obviously Newton wasn't around to defend his theory anymore, but you know, Einstein went on to teach us that the empty space or the seemingly empty space around us isn't nothing, it's something. 
it's it's space time and you can bend it and warp it and curve it and and we've since proved that to be true so newton was completely wrong but he was actually almost right in fact newtonian gravity is so right that you can work out how just about everything in the universe works with it but actually it's fundamentally flawed it's got a huge mistake in it and um you know that's that little tiny bit of explanation which um i kind of guess you know um einstein's relativity space time goes on to explain a bunch more stuff that at the time was probably only interesting to scientists but now is becoming more and in- more interesting to the normal person as we mm. get smarter and we're able to think about the implications of that because actually the two the two theories if you like they were they were explaining the same thing. They came to the same end result. And only in a particular set of circumstances would it be necessary to understand that Einstein's theory of gravity was different. So you have to be really comfortable being wrong uh, or being nearly right. It's, it's just, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a, 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 one of the great joys of science is having one of your colleagues or one of your peers or, I guess someone in the future proving that what you what you discovered was not actually quite right because it means that we're learning more and that's science is the is the study of is the study of learning. I think every man uh, listening to the podcast is already comfortable being wrong if they're married. So there we go. Um, <laughs> the the what I guess my next question would be. Um, being we just talked about Pluto and the and the impact the change had on on the educational system because you know you're yep. changing textbooks. Um, do you, do you find yourselves getting or not specifically you but the the field obviously is involved in in the educational system. Yeah. So what what parts do you do you play the most and and and. I guess is there is there certain topics that you just steer clear of, and there's different experts that deal with that kind of stuff, or is because astro uh, being an astrophysicist, you're kind of in everything really, other than history, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, even in history as well, uh, there's pl- plenty to learn from, um, you know, plenty to learn from history. I guess, and and I suppose this is another good point actually, which which does touch back on um, what we were discussing on the sort of difference between science and religion. And and it, it also fits quite nicely into where the average scientist website sits in there as well. So can, you know, can I explain a really complicated subject to you like string theory? Yeah, absolutely I can. Will you understand it? Sure you will. String theory is not difficult to understand at all. Most science topics are not difficult to understand at all. People think that they're complicated, but often they're not. I could explain to you Newtonian gravity or space-time or string theory or quantum mechanics. All of these things, they're not difficult to understand because the concepts at heart are very simple. What's difficult is proving that that's what's happening. And that is the big problem that people have. So I'll say to you, okay, here's, here, here, for example, is is... Um, Einstein's space-time. I will explain it to you and say to you, that's absolutely how it works. We know that. Um, and you've got two choices there. You can either believe me or you can go away and learn the math, prove it for yourself. And that is the stumbling point. And, you know, I, I guess at that point, science does cross over into a slight belief system because I'm saying to you, well, you're going to have to trust me on that one, Phil. You don't have to mm. trust me because you can go away and prove it for yourself if you want to. But 
um, some, and and that is where we get into a range of people that um, uh, you know can't for whatever reason or won't. And but we're not asking you to believe us. We don't we don't mind if you believe us or not. We the the, the great beauty of science is it doesn't care what you think. It's just the same anyway. So I think that's the that's the <laughs> that's the um, you know that that's the position. So I think yeah, you have to be comfortable being wrong. Um, you know, you you the, the difference between believing and knowing unfortunately is where it starts to get difficult and in terms of what fields do we work in in education you need that framework you absolutely Mm. need that framework so that that education process starts quite early on and it would it would go through quite quite a lot of mathematics unfortunately for 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 those you know it's a it's a great shame for me as well you know that the language of the uh, universe is is mathematics and it's a a hilarious story my least favorite subject yeah (laughs) well I I went through quite quite a few stages of maths in my university courses and uh, you know I kind of went through like normal you know addition subtraction division multiplication all that sort of stuff and then you go on you do a little bit more and a little bit more and you go to sort of algebra one and algebra two and all these different types of things and I got to the end of like algebra two and I thought I'm this is it I'm a maths genius I'm you know never going to need any more maths in my life and then my university professor said to me um the problem with algebra is that only ever it only ever gives you answers it's only the study of something that's not moving and you know at that point I was like okay and he went unfortunately you're going to need to progress on to calculus because Ian the universe doesn't work like that (laughs) Nothing ever wow. stands still, <laughs> and then really <laughs> yeah, and it really was like starting again. It's it's so it's it, there's a lot of complicated um, theory as there is with anything. So mm. where do we get involved in the education system? I mean, obviously, you know, students will come through and they'll have an they'll have an interest in a particular area. So if you're gonna if you're gonna do qualifications in astrophysics, you're obviously gonna have to learn a framework of knowledge over a few areas, obviously a lot of physics and a lot of maths. And then you choose, you know, then you choose your area that you're gonna study. And you're right, there is a huge variety of different areas that you can work in. Um some of those will be um areas that are would be deemed as quite useful to people in um, sort of inverted commas, if you like, things that we would, that, you know, th- things related to, um, you know, rockets and space travel and that type of thing. Do you get involved then, in the curriculum or anything? Is there is because um, here, here's my what I'm really trying to get at is um, I hate maths. There's no it's not a secret. A lot of people don't like maths. They leave school. Maths, if you can count your money in, in the bank account, then you're doing well. Right. Um, yep. If 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 my if my kids come home we're and have problems with maths we're screwed we're going to have to get a tutor it's that simple but um, what's happening now is this new math and I don't know if you're aware of it or if it's hit the the UK or Europe yet but there's a new math and how they figure it out and it's going through the schools and my question is I suppose and why I asked if you're involved in the curriculum is. Is, is that based off of something? Is is that coming from scientists going, there's an easier way or is there, there's another way of doing this? We want it done this way because it proves, are, like, are you trying to build the bench of scientists by creating a different curriculum based on maths? Or is this just a decision on the school system 
worldwide to just say, yeah, we're going to add this up, but we, we want a backstory on everything that you're giving us. I think it's more probably, certainly in the UK, it's more directed from schools. So I wouldn't really have any hand in any um, advice into the curriculum to teach any subject particularly. We do run a few school workshops, but those are quite vocational. So then they wouldn't really be involved involving any heavy theory or anything like that. I mean, I, <clears throat> I think the trouble with this is that you know students through the schools and and maybe you know some some older people that have left school struggle to see the application of maths that's the that's the problem so <clears throat> maths isn't a, a pain for an astrophysicist it's just a tool it's no different to um it's no different to a builder laying bricks if i if i if someone asked me to build a wall i would be in big trouble because I don't know the theory and I don't have the tools. But, um, you know, bricks and mortar and a trowel, they're an astrophysicist's tools mathematically. So for, for me to get to some work that I'm doing, I cannot get there without some of these tools. So to me, they don't really seem like, I guess when we're at school and things like that, we get a hard question and we think, oh, well, the end result for me or the end result for you is... 34 that's what my maths tutor wants me to write on the piece of paper and that's where my involvement stops mm. for an astrophysicist finding that magic 34 is where it starts so you have to get there if you see what i mean and then that's going to lead that's going to lead to more and more math but you it's it's a tool that you use to get from a to b and it, and it's just an unfortunate inclusion that that's how the universe works if we if we ever just to trans you know to sort of go back quickly to the um to the alien civilization, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that type of thing. If we ever communicated, our first communication with with any um, alien civilization would likely be in the language of mathematics, because it's common across the universe. It has to be common. If a <clears throat> if another civilization calls the number two two, or whether they call it something else, it doesn't matter. It's still the same thing. There's still the same amount of um, you know, hydrogen, neutral hydrogen is still made up in the same way, no matter where it is in the universe. So however that however that civilization chose to describe it, it's a truly universal language, even if we even if we describe it in different ways. So that's <clears throat> I guess at the core of it. And the education system has always got to start to build on that because it's a it's a big step from secondary school mathematics to astrophysics mathematics it's a massive step wow wow and ian you're um you're an incredibly interesting fellow um i'm i'm in awe of the knowledge you have in your brain and i haven't even really tapped into it much tonight i must <laughs> say um we've we've had um some really interesting topics but i have a funny feeling i'm going to have you back and it won't be that long after this is is has been released because I think everyone's going to want to hear from you again and hear more from you um, because of the the knowledge and the and uh, and what we've talked about. Um, I'm going to quote you because I think this is a an amazing quote that you actually, while we were preparing to have you on, you sent me this while we were chatting about um, the evidence of life and and religion and everything. Um, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And I think that quote, that line, that is just so perfect because it not just 
serves as a, I suppose, a mantle for religion, but it's also a a great mantle for for scientists everywhere because it's such it kind of it bridges that gap. It's like it's like the two the two subjects, the two fields. It's like you sitting down with a bishop and you just having a beer and realizing that yeah, you know what? It's it's cool. We're we're good. You know what I mean? It's but it, it is that that phrase is just it, it's just an amazing line and i think it really is it opens the door to to realize that you know just because it is you you know because there is no evidence that it exists doesn't mean it, it it's not there but it, vice versa so it's, <clears throat> you know like um uh, another another famous analogy of this which will help your um you know sort of help your listeners understand it's a bit like <clears throat> going to the going to the beach near where you live to try and discover if it's true that there are whales in the ocean because i don't know about you phil but i've never seen a whale not in real life not in the ocean so i'm i'm relying on david attenborough's word or yeah. someone else's word so i'm going to go to the beach near my house and i'm going to scoop up a jam jar full of water and then I'm going to look in that water and not find any whales in it. So I'm going to tell the rest of the world there's no whales in the ocean because I can't see any in my jar of water. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> that is that is that's just amazing. Um, <laughs> Ian, um, we're, we're closing in on the hour. And um, I know it's late here, but it's early there. And I'm very conscious of time and your battery in your camera and everything. Um, so um, for those of you, the, the listeners that want to hear more, um, definitely um, you can guarantee Ian is going to be back because I'm going to make it happen. But also um, to hear more, he does have a website. So Ian, give us some um, ways to contact you to get more info, um, um, your website, everything. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah. So you can visit our website where you'll find us at www.theaveragescientist.co.uk or .com, whichever is your preference. Um, we're also fairly active on social media. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. We've got, um, a bunch of videos that we've made on the website, which are quite interesting watching tons of things to read. We also have our own podcast. Um, so that's quite a recent thing, but we've had a couple of episodes there where we've talked about uh, life um, elsewhere in the universe in episode one and black holes in episode two. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, you can find us all there. And if you are anywhere in the UK, if you are listening from the, from the UK, we do have uh, a bunch of live events which we are um, conducting throughout the um, throughout the summer and actually also into the autumn as well. And details of those are on the website under the Task Talks tab. So that's where you can find us. That's uh, amazing. Ian, you're a fantastic guy. I really appreciate you being on the, the podcast. Um, I, I'm, I'm promising things that I haven't even agreed with you yet, but I'd love to have you back because um, you've definitely, back, you, you've <laughs> just uh, blown my mind and we really haven't really touched on some of the subjects that we were chatting before the, the show, but um, I hope this is a, a good uh, entry level for, for the guys who are listening and gals who are listening to like really just look you up and, and find out some more. Um, the, 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 the big sentence that's on the front page of your, your website is science articles and explainers for normal people 
Um, you can call me normal. Um, and Ian is, is <laughs> I don't know what, what, what the alternative to normal would be that isn't derogatory. So we're just going to say you're just super <laughs> smart and, um, uh, and people generally, people generally use the word nerd, Phil. That's still nerd. a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. If you're a nerd, we're, right, then we're, we're going to have to <laughs> reclassify that or something. We're going to pull a Pluto on it and, and do something different. Um, well, guys, that's been uh, another episode of the Unscripted Perspective. Ian Hall has been our guest this evening. Don't forget to go and check out his website, theaveragescientist.co.uk. It is incredible. There's some great stuff on there. Um, you will find me again next week with another in- incredibly interesting guest. And we will speak to you then. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to leave us a rating or review on your favorite listening platform. Be sure to keep in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at The Unscripted Perspective. Or you can visit us at www.theunscriptedperspective.com.